Welcome to an episode of the award-winning podcast Art Insiders New York. My name is Anders Holst. The theme of the podcast is New York, with a focus on behind-the-scenes conversations with fascinating people who are making an impact in the world of art, design, and architecture. Paula Scher is one of the most acclaimed graphic designers in the world. She has been a principal in the New York office of the distinguished international design consultancy Pentagram since 1991, where she has designed identity systems, environmental graphics, packaging, and publications for a wide range of clients that include, among others, the Public Theatre, the Museum of Modern Art, the High Line, the Metropolitan Opera, Tiffany & Company, Citibank, and Microsoft. Cher has been the recipient of hundreds of industry honors, including the National Design Award and the AIGA Medal. She's an established artist exhibiting worldwide, and her designs are in the permanent collections of the Museum of Modern Art, the Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum, the Library of Congress, the Victoria and Albert Museum, and other institutions. A documentary on Cher and her work can be seen in the highly acclaimed Netflix series Abstract, The Art of Design. Hey, Paula. Hello. Hi, how are you? Well, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. You're sitting in front of your beautiful painting, I see. Yeah. Want to see how big the painting is? I'll yeah. show you. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> wow. And that is Africa, right? Wow, it's South America. South America, okay. You've got to know your continents. I know, I know. And what is the, what is the data? This time around. Uh, I mean, I've been painting hurricanes and natural disasters and things like that. Oh. And uh, sort of air current systems that are screwing up the environment. Oh, my goodness. I'm fascinated by that. So when are you having your next uh, exhibition? Well, I've been working on um, a project that is coming near completion. I've been painting a Porsche for a collector. And the Porsche is going to, we're going to try to show it in New York, and then it's going to Germany. Oh. And they'll probably exhibit it there with maybe some of my paintings, and then I, it goes to the Porsche Museum. Wow. So is it uh, in, in natural size Porsche, or is it... Uh... Oh, no, it's a, real, it's a 1977 uh, collector item Porsche. Let me see if I've got, I may have some pictures I can show. You know, that is actually one of my questions because you said that in one of, I think in one of your podcasts or in one of the articles, you said, now I'm going to go out and uh, meet with these people from Porsche. And I thought, uh, <laughs> that sounds <laughs> well, really... It's art cars have become very fashionable. Oh, is that right? Yeah, I saw Drake had his uh, Rolls Royce, uh, you know, redesigned. So can I ask you, do you go from data first that interests you and uh, sort of the design or the motives uh, or the inspiration in your head? Or is it the other way around? Or is it both at the same time? I usually find a kind of a um, territory that I want to talk about. Sometimes they're not maps. I mean, I've done things that are just about political uh, comments and things like that, but but the map paintings are the things people really know, and they really they really come from different emphasis, like how cities are structured, or climate, or land masses and roads. But there'll be something that sort of is statistical that sort of interests me, but it's usually not about conveying information, but more I would call it ab abstract impressionist information. Like there, there's usually. Sometimes there's sarcasm in it. Sometimes they're they're just showing absurdities. I see. And, and sometimes they tell a sort of truth. 
but it's pretty dense. I mean, you get that impression that there's a lot to digest. I mean, you can see it from a distance and then it's more abstract. But when I guess when you get closer, there's a lot of information there. Yeah, people take the information literally. I saw somebody, we, there was a painting I did of the United States that had roadways in it. And it was at the Cooper Hewitt for about six months. Oh. <laughs> I saw these people standing in front of it, talking about a road trip they take and taking and using the map as a basis for discussing it. Wow. It was okay, except for the roadmap was wrong. You know, like, I mean, there, wasn't any, there wasn't anything that was actually factual. On them. I mean, there were real names of places, but they weren't necessarily quite in the right spot. They're more sort of right, I would say. I see. Well, but that is that is the joy of traveling, though. I mean, uh, it's not an exact science, you know. Uh, it, the unexpected is, is very much the charm when you travel, I guess. I think I started doing this. Uh, I started painting these in um, around 2000, and it really came from information overload. You know, I think that's what really inspired them in the beginning. I see. Well, it's hard for the listeners to, to, to understand the Porsche uh, example there, but it was a Porsche with uh, the uh, United States, a map of the United States with the states there, and, and it was very colorful. And uh, So what kind of data do you have on that particular uh, vehicle? Well, I paint usually with about three or four different maps, and sometimes just Google Maps. Uh -huh. So I have different references that I combine. Um, because I'm, sometimes I'm just making aesthetic decisions with them, you know, like in terms of uh, a sensibility I'm looking for to convey the information. And I need, I need it from a variety of different sources. So I'm pulling from all the different sources. I see. And it has to do with making sort of uh, texture, emphasis, all that stuff. Well, Paula, I, I didn't say this, but welcome to, to the show. <laughs> How are we on? <laughs> yes, we just stumbled into it, which I love. You know, that's the best. Yeah, that's, that's great. That's the best thing. Now, I, I, I spoke to my daughter or I emailed my daughter the other week and I said, I'm going to interview you. And she said, wow, you must be kidding. I've seen her show on Netflix many times. So did you know that you have a fan base in Sweden? <laughs> No, I know. No, I didn't know that. That's nice. I like Sweden. Have you? I've been a long time. We were going to have a, a partners meeting there, and uh, we had to cancel uh, for COVID. And I, I used to, um, I've been to Sweden, I think maybe six or seven times, but not recently. If you are into your line of business, can you travel well from different cultures? I actually worked on a Swedish project years ago. I worked for a Swedish candy company that was named Ula, and I actually made up the name with the owners. And it was a chain of candy stores. They were, uh, they were, it was very 80s. I think I did it in the 80s. I don't think the stores are around anymore, but the cans are. That's interesting, no, because my, my, um, my daughter's husband, he's into candy. So she said that maybe Paula would like to design some of our candy because they are... I, very... loved, I loved that job. It's, <laughs> uh, it, it, was, uh, it was really well received in the 80s. As a matter of fact, um, the company was... The, the two guys were from Gothenburg. I remember going there and then going to Stockholm. It's wonderful. You are uh, working with uh, creating identity systems for uh, companies and organizations. I mean, that's uh, part of what you do. You do other things too, for instance, painting, beautiful I painting. I also do environmental graphics. I design uh, environments, uh, signage systems, that sort of thing. Exactly. So how, how would you describe what you do? My job as a designer is to make things understandable and recognizable to audiences. Generally, it's in creating 
something that makes a business recognizable and something that a consumer understands and that they connect that thing they see with the business itself and the two become intertwined. I'm trying to think of something that would be global that your your audience would know like Citibank and there's an arc on top or Shake Shack and there's the burger in a specific type of typography. So people associate the burger that comes with Shake Shack with that design. Those are the sorts of things that, that I do. And sometimes they're more complicated. Um, sometimes there are... Uh, systems of play, like it might be a university and you have to do uh, the name of the school, but then all the names of the different divisions and you have to make them similar and different. They're complicated problems sometimes and they're not all solved the same way. So is it fair to say that then it's sort of 10%, uh, you know, the cliche, 10% inspiration and 90% transpiration? There's so many platforms today and they all have to connect, right? We move from a verbal culture to a visual culture. Like people respond and can recognize typefaces where they wouldn't even know what a typeface was, or uh, you know, 20 years ago. They can um, understand a corporation and everything that that corporation represents from some form of visual language that moves into an app. You know, that starts maybe maybe in a building, moves to an app, or vice versa. These things are recognized and understood almost immediately, and that, that didn't used to be the case. It's very different now. So that it's a popular profession. Um, there are a lot of people who want the service that we provide, and uh, it's become a very important basis of communication. I know, but you are exceptionally talented at it. I've understood. Uh, and it's it's very complicated. I know that my, my father, he used to work at Securitas, you know, the security company, and their logo is these three red dots, uh, which signifies the S in the in the Morse uh, code, right? And But it was then renamed by the general public, like the Lingenberry Company. Can you sometimes use parody as a, as a way of communication, or is that a very risky approach? Well, I think all things, all approaches are, are possible. And I think everything is risky and nothing is risky. I think that in the end, um, you don't control what you make. You make whatever you it is you're making uh, for an audience that is your specific client. And those are usually people, in, they're usually insiders. They're people inside a corporation or they're people founding a business or they work inside an, uh, an arts organization or mm-hmm. they are inside a school and they don't actually, they're, they're making this thing for their public and they may have research for their public, but you can't totally predict or, ins- it or, or influence yeah. how the public is going to respond. And sometimes the public makes something else of it that's completely not in your intent. Sometimes that's very fortunate. Sometimes that's very unfortunate. Any designer who says that they can predict what's going to happen 20 or 30 years down the line with whatever it is they designed is really not telling you the truth. I was fascinated by, by what you mentioned in one of the interviews with the public theater. Well, I just finished my uh, uh, 27th season with them. You told the, 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 the person you were speaking to that you have gone in and, and fixed a few details and, and, and adjusted it to, uh, I guess, the, the zeitgeist, and you updated it. and. Uh, and and the best thing is that people don't really uh, notice that, right? Because that's the whole point. 
The point wasn't to change it, just to keep them relevant. Yeah. I mean, you sort of have to, it's sort of like a car, you know, you, 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 you build this thing, you got to go back and it needs a new carburetor and you got to, <laughs> you know, sort of change the tires and, and make sure it's running properly and people are using it properly. By the way, that Netflix uh, documentary is really good. Uh, a really good director did it. His name is Richard Press. Yeah, and I was lucky that I had him. He was he he is he is a fabulous director. No, because when I I've seen it a couple of times and I and it really captures all the various aspects. But one aspect that I find really interesting in your work is also the fact that it's not about only designing things uh, that are interesting and attractive and inspiring and that uh, evokes emotions, but. Uh, or it's also important to, to people to buy into it. I spoke to my accountant, and he's he's with Massars in in the United States, and they, he said, "Oh, this company is you know it's impossible. We we spent millions of dollars in our new uh, logo, and there's been interviews, and everybody's been you know uh, briefed." And then I was thinking about Percy Barnevik, a Swedish uh, legendary uh, corporate leader for Asea Brown Boveri, and they decided about the logo in an afternoon. At a board meeting, you know, he was not the kind of guy who was going to spend any money on this. So, what do you think about this? I'm for all of it. There's no right or wrong way. I have, uh, I designed the logo for the High Line, you know, a little piece of paper, and and gave it to them because they, it was a favor, and it's 20 years old now, and everybody in the world knows it if you've gone to the High Line in New York, and and it was because they didn't have any money, they were just starting out, they needed something, and we did it. And we could also have done that with 15 people yeah. and had everybody have a written approval, I suppose. And maybe we could have done it with 25. But I think the more people you add, the less the, uh, the odds are that it's going to be that clear. Um, it doesn't take long. People take long. Now, in a really large scale corporation, you really do have to work it through the corporation. And, and that's a slow and very often very tedious process, but mm. it, uh, the results are great. Um, the thing is that we designers hate having to admit is that this is not science. This is a lot of guesswork that the research that is done uh, in relationship to things like somebody's position and who their audience are only tell you what exists before you start designing it. It doesn't tell you how somebody's going to feel in five years or even the, even next year. It doesn't, it doesn't, you can't predict economies. Yeah. You can't predict the zeitgeist. You have to make an assumption based on things you already know that your guesswork is correct. And you have to make people feel delighted by it. Yes. If it feels too oppressive, why would anybody want to use it? A, a little bit of joy has to come through or the thing is deadly. And you, you explained that in, in, the, in the Netflix episode very well when you said that you have this in, initial euphoria, right? When you present something and they say, oh my God, is this really us? I mean, this is perfect and so beautiful. And then, then you explained, maybe you should explain it better than I do to, for, for our listeners. Then, then what I, happens? Oh, you're talking about the diagram of the yeah, movie. I love that. When you start out uh, and every, you walk into a room and... Um, People are anxious. They all want to see what you did. They're really, uh, everybody's enthusiastic. And you begin to present. You see everybody's eyes are upon you. And they're really quite, seemingly quite delighted. And, and it gets better and better and better. Until you get to the highest point it will ever be at. And at that moment, and it could take 20 minutes. It could take a half an hour. It could take five minutes. But at that point, yes, 
there'll be a time for rebuttal because you finished. And then somebody will say, yeah, wonderful work. I had some thoughts. What about blah, blah, blah? Or did you consider this? Or had you tried that? Or doesn't this company have something like that? Or do you really like that blue? Or whatever it is that's in the thing. And it'll begin to sort of slide <laughs> down. And it starts to slide down until you're about maybe a little bit above the point you walked in in the door. <laughs> At that moment in time, you have to grab the argument back and bring it back up as high as you can possibly make it reach before somebody else is going to begin a, rebu a second rebuttal to your comeback. At that moment, the meeting must end. <laughs> the meeting must end. You must have another appointment. You must, somebody has to go. Door. We can revisit this. And, because Olivia will call you. <laughs> lower, lower, and lower, and lower until you, re you reach total death. You must have seen so much of human nature that you would maybe prefer not to see, right? Have you ever, have you ever had a project where you, you left and say, you know what, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I can't, I can't do anything here because, you know... I would say a number of times. <laughs> I mean, there, there, sometimes it's just your, the dynamic of the group is wrong. Yeah. Sometimes you're wrong for the job. Yeah. Sometimes the job isn't properly explained. Sometimes the job isn't worth doing. Yeah. I have a lot of projects that they don't really need my help. You know, they, they, they come, they want to talk about it, and you find out they're really perfectly fine with what they had, and there's really no reason for me to get involved. Maybe, maybe they have other issues they have to work on, but the, the sort of the visual system or the visual part of it, it works actually quite well. It was so interesting. I interviewed um, Craig Dykers of Snöhetta. You know, he, he did this 9-11, um, uh, uh, the National uh, Pavilion. And, uh, and I said to him that, okay, so you have a team approach, and, but someone has to hold the pen and draw. And he said, that's very interesting. You and I are part of the same generation because the new generation, they don't draw. They don't have a pen. They have a computer. Computer. But you, you paint uh, in a way when you create, correct? Sketch. I think with my hand. I don't think on the computer. But my team sketches. I mean that that very often when we're developing logos, we sketch back and forth. Like we may, you know, we may start with a sketch and somebody works on the sketch, and then all of a sudden the sketch is up on the computer, and then it's printed out from the computer, and then there are a bunch of them on the wall. And back in the days that we were in the office and actually had a wall that we could be at at the same time. Now we're doing it back and forth on Zoom, and it's actually not very satisfying. But there is there are those moments in that you start to see the thing collectively, and and it 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 gets you improve it until it till you you then begin to prove out the system. First, you start with a form, and then you prove out the system. What you were talking about in times of typography, and how uh, these different. Uh, um, designs have you said something about spirit and me spirit and meaning and when you combine that with character words words have meaning and type has spirit and when you put them together the spirit and the meaning come together and that's what the magic is yeah I thought that was such an incredible, I mean, I, I, it was a revelation for me because I can really relate to that in terms of when lyrics and music come together or when music and visual elements come together. So I, I was also fascinated by when you talked about your creative process that you'd like to be interrupted, you are interrupted, you think best when you're in a cab or when you put on lipstick. And, and you know, I thought that was so interesting because I thought about Rollo May, he wrote this book, Courage to Create, and he said, Why do you get the best ideas when you walk the dog and when you're in the shower?
you if you sit down and try to think of an idea, you're not going to have one. If you're walking around and you're looking at something else and you're distracted, you've allowed the the subconscious part of you to operate. Yeah. Because you know, in in your, I always expre- explained it that to me creativity is a little bit like a slot machine, and I hate the word creativity. It's really coming up with ideas. How do ideas happen? Mm-hmm. If you consider that you have everything you ever absorbed in one side of your brain, like every movie you've ever seen, every book you've ever read, every piece of clothing you ever owned, every building you ever admired, every country you ever visited, all that's like in in there rolling around Mm. one side of your head. And then on the other side of your head brain is some brief, you know, something somebody asked you to do to figure out some problem you have to solve and you have to solve that problem with all this other stuff inside your head. So for me, it's like a slot machine. You put in a quarter, it sort of rolls around when you're not paying attention, and then the coins come out. You know, that, that's sort of it. But you don't, it, it, it sounds, I, I'm, I'm making it absurd, and there, there's, there's knowledge and, and training and all those things that help it happen. Yeah. But it happens because you've absorbed those things and you're laying it next to something that's concrete, like a brief. And that that's how that functions. And if you if you if you're comfortable with it, you can make it happen more. If you're trying too hard to make it happen, it doesn't. I see that. Yeah. Do you do meditation or any other techniques except for, for <laughs> you used to be a smoker, now you read emails. But you, uh, do oh, you that ha- was bad. That was bad for, that was bad for creativity. You know? <laughs> um, I watch a lot of old movies on television. Yeah. They're good. And you memorize the dialogue too, I saw. Yeah, the dialogue's great, especially when you've seen them about five times. I do it now, I've been doing it when I'm painting and I can only, because I, particularly with, 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 the painting I'm doing, I can't actually watch a television screen. I have to listen to it. And if I, I can't, it can't be anything where you have to look at it. So it can't be, you know, like a detective movie where you're just like all this undercover work and, and cars moving really fast because you don't know what the hell is going on. So yeah. it's got to be something that there's a lot of dialogue, like the, something that came from a play. So when you paint, you have the movie going on and then you fill in the blanks or you, you, you yeah, do well, voiceover? already seen it i know what's going on i go oh this is the part where the car went up the hill and fell off the cliff you know i mean that's that that's <laughs> that's not but if i haven't seen the movie it's useless it's like a completely useless experience they, they don't teach that at at the design schools do they you know no. techniques yeah, for I mean, well I, I when i was in college i you know i i listened to to my record collection and and then i listened to my cd collection and then i listened to what's on my iPhone, and then I got sick of it all, and now yeah. I just listen to movies I've seen before. When my ex-wife, she, when she sees a number, she sees a color. And I've also heard that when people see other kind of either numbers or letters, they hear music. Now, with you and and letters, does it is there a vibration of sorts, or is there like something coming? I mean, why are some letters, why do they make you feel something in particular? Well, letters have form and, and, you know, it depends on how you respond to form. I mean, if you have an alphabet and, and it's uh, thick and it's in capital letters, it'll feel very powerful. It can feel overbearing. It can even be impressive. 
if it's a script, it may feel decorative. It may feel light. It may actually also be ugly. It really depends upon how it's drawn. Yeah. But you're going to have you're going to have a response to weight. You're going to have a response to color. You're going to have a response to a degree to use. Like for example, if you if you expect uh, a theater to have you know neon lights or bulbs and then suddenly it becomes very modern architecture with you know typography and signage that's made out of super modern materials and don't does not conform to your idea of the theater you might be disappointed with it initially and then find love it because it because it changed your expectations and that that i think the goal of design is to elevate the expectation of what the public has of what that design can be. That's yeah. when things start to get to be good. Is that you? You when when you repeat something over and over again, and that's your expectation. It's going to be hackneyed and not terribly interesting until somebody throws that that language into a different spin, and you see it in a new way. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it makes sense. You know, it was so interesting. I got this in the mail yesterday, and I was thinking about you. It's from Departures. And they're, they're changing their, their logo, I guess. And I, I was thinking when I was studying this, there is a big difference between uh, this one and that one. But, but here, or this one and that one, I think, here it becomes very different and very interesting. And I guess they're doing this now because they are going totally digital, I believe. Well, that makes sense. I mean, it's lowercase. It's sort of the digital landscape. It's a real thick and thin one that's in fashion now. The one above it is sort of a fake 1930s design. The one above the other, the others above that are just like sort of like a kind of uninteresting topography. It looks like the top one looks like a bedoni. Go into some bastardization of the bedoni. Then we got bastardization. I, mean, <laughs> I can bore you with this, but I. So I there are trends in this, of course, as in everything else. Now, can you anticipate a trend, or, or are you leading the trend? Can you explain trends in fonts? Uh, there are usually a response to what came before it, and mm-hmm. if you look at if you look at typography, you know, I remember when I when I came into the design industry and everybody's everybody's perception of design is influenced by what design looked like at the moment you entered the door and you came in and said okay I'm a designer I'm going to become a designer and you become aware of everything and uh, in my experience uh, when I went to school uh, we were taught on the Swiss modernist system with a typeface called Helvetica which is very clean pure typeface which I hated because that was the typeface everybody used and I thought it was the typeface that was establishment oriented and the Vietnam War was going on and the Vietnam War was was paid for by corporations who all had the typeface Helvetica so in my mind Helvetica was associated with the Vietnam War you know like that's the way you begin to make cultural associations about these things you see in relationship to various milieus as you understand them. Me, what was cool was what my husband was doing, although he wasn't my husband then, which was Pushpin Studios, and they worked with very eclectic typography, and that some of the typography was combined with illustration, and some of the typography was period-oriented, like it was from the 30s, or Art Nouveau, or Art Deco, and to me, this was much more expressive and much more interesting, and it was doubly infused with my relationship to drug culture at that time in the 60s. You know, I was in art school, so there was there were underground comics, and there were rolling paper designs and things that belonged in places like head shops 
And that began, then I became a professional. And when I became a professional, the person who was fashionable was a guy named Herb Lou Bauer. And he used to, he used to close up the typography very tight. So when I was in my record cover period in the seventies, I used to rebel to him by letter spacing out everything very wide. (laughs) And that, that you would find that each generation naturally rebels against the one in power until this thing goes around. I see. Uh, what's interesting now with typography is that the software and the interest in the education in type has gotten so spectacular that all kinds of young people are really creating their own fonts and doing it very well. And they, they've learned to draw typography. They've worked, learned to work with the appropriate software and they can design and program alphabets to behave. And it's probably the best form of typography I've seen. It's really one of the best periods ever. I, it was so funny when you said this uh, about the High Line. I, I interviewed Robert Hammond uh, for the podcast, and he said, we were just two, two guys, you know, and a logo. And he said it like that all the time. He said, we just had a logo. And, That's all they had. And then they cooked up all this. I mean, it's, you know, it also says something about the power of what you're working with, because he also mentioned that when we, when we talked about the High Line, people fell asleep. But when we showed the photos, everybody just jumped in and said, oh, I see this. I see a culture center. I see this. And so he said, let's just just shut up. (laughs) Show the logo and the photos, and we'll be be just fine. Um, That's all true. So when you approach a a project, you have sort of the strategic and the intuitive uh, approach. Uh, The world is filled with with data, and you so you you have you so you study the patient sort of from all different angles, I guess. And then and then the slot machine is then working on the other side. uh, Correct? It it is it 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 is uh, analytical and intuitive. Purely analytical, you're not going to make anything that's very interesting to look at. You'll make something structural, but you won't make anything that's necessarily memorable. What you said in a couple of, uh, of interviews is that you're, you're not really trying to change your client into doing something new, but rather to um, accentuate uh, what is a better all- version of themselves. <laughs> Yeah, a better. No, it's sort of a better a better way of understanding who they already were. I mean, sometimes they they've made mistakes in information they've put out that's confusing to an audience, or sometimes they've made themselves look ugly for no reason, or sometimes they were told that uh, an advertising campaign was going to be good for them and it wasn't. I mean, a lot of times you just either you're completely inventing because they didn't exist before, yeah. or you're correcting. Yeah. And most jobs are really corrections. So what is the difference between good taste and good design? Is there a difference or is good design always good taste? Or Good design is uh, has to do with the situation. Good design can't be defined without some context. In other words, you could say something is tasteless, but in that context, it's absolutely the right thing to do because it's a joke or it's making some statement of outrage or because it's it's deliberately smacking you in the face and that's the point of the maybe the the object or product or or business the person has developed so that there are moments of appropriateness for virtually anything yeah i mean think about my my three biggest inspirations as a kid in in uh, high school and college were the three beatles albums revolver sergeant pepper and the white album 
and they came out only a year apart. And the revolver cover used this very complicated illustration with a photograph, and I'd never seen anything like it. So I thought, I didn't know an album cover could look like that. Yeah. Usually it was a picture of the artist, and they they had like a bright colored background or something. And all of a sudden, there's this very uh, um, kind of nouveau-inspired drawing with this complicated hair, and I looked at it for hours when I looked at the music. And then he, only a year later was an even more sophisticated version of it, which was Sgt. Pepper, which had... Uh, you know, sort of social relevance. You know, there's celebrities that meant different things to you that were integrated into this group all as a marching band. And that was another thing that was quite amazing. And then only a year later, their new album came out. We were all ready for it and it had a completely white cover. Yeah. You know, it was really like, screw you, here yeah. you are. <laughs> you know, and, and that was like total, out, absolutely what Yiddish words chutzpah, like just this kind of like bravado they had that they, only they could do it. They were so famous and so well known, they didn't have to put a damn thing on their cover. You know, and then <laughs> sort of fading away. But that's, that was, that was thinking and pacing. Yeah. You know, that, that, and that, you know, they hired, they, it was interesting. I think all three artists were uh, fine artists. Was it Klaus Wurman who did Revolver? Yep. And I'm trying to remember the artist who did the White Album and then Peter Blake did Sgt. Pepper. But they were, they were, they were, the, those guys were not functioning as graphic designers, their careers. They were, they were, Peter Blake's work was always very conceptual, but they were, you know, fine artists. You've been involved with a number of, of different projects here since this podcast uh, relates to New York. I'm a little curious about MoMA. Uh, how did that uh, come about? MoMA was a, a, it was a sort of an interesting problem. Um, they had um, they had the logo that for, for a long time. It was designed originally by Ivan Shumayov, and it was redrawn uh, by um, a fantastic... Another person whose name I'm forgetting is an amazing type designer, and it was drawn and perfected. And they uh, then a, another designer named Bruce Mao put it on the building. And when he put it on the building, he ran the the, the signage at the side, on a on its side, mm -hmm. so that if you're a New Yorker, you could recognize that that cap M small M A on its side. And and so at the point that Glenn Lowry hired me, he didn't hire me to redesign his logo he hired me to find a way to create a system whereby you recognized the museum when they were promoting an, a, a show like they would have they would have a show of uh, say Jeff Koons they're gonna have a big Jeff Koons show people would remember that there's a Jeff Koons show going on but they wouldn't remember what museum they saw it at or what oh. museum it was advertised for it was really surprising how little people knew what was going on at MoMA, yet people knew these shows were going on somewhere because they saw them advertised. And it had to do with the way the curators uh, felt about branding and that because they were curators, their show and those artists were more important than the institution. So what Glenn hired me to do was for a period of time, um, I created a modular system by which there was MoMA existed in a specific position in all ads and communications. And then there was secondary typography that told you other things that were going on at MoMA while the big picture was the picture from the exhibition. Oh, and it became the language of everything for a period of about eight years. 
and uh, you know, sort of it, it it went into. I think I did the work in about 2008, and they used it fairly consistently until about 2015 or 16, and then they began to redesign how to work with it when they moved into the new space. That was a bigger building, which is usually what drives an identity change. But they never changed the logo, which is right. Also, I noticed in the new in the new space, it looks like the curators got control again because they <laughs> had the thing really big and the, the the name of the museum small. But that's what I did for them during that period of time, and it was everywhere. It was all over town. Yeah, I guess it's a it's a difference if you work with sort of a community oriented organization where you have members, as opposed to a corporation where the decision making is, I guess, a little bit more streamlined. Correct? No. No, actually, no. Um, corporations are usually very bureaucratic and lots of people have to be involved in the process or they'll be offended by the result if they're not included. Okay. Unless unless the, the, the head of the corporation is so autocratic that they keep everyone out. But that's not the way today. I yeah. mean, any any large-scale corporation is going to have a lot of approvals. Not-for-profit theaters, you know, which have members, uh, you know, tend to be really controlled by their directors, so there are fewer approvals. It's just the opposite of what you suggested. I see. Very interesting. Well, you learn something every day. And then, of course, the public theater um, that I, has played a big role in in your life and in your career, I guess. It, it was an unusual process and a, an unusual project in, in a lot of ways. Uh, the things that make it unusual are, and odd for our industry is that generally you make a relationship with a client and when that client leaves, you're sort of done. Um, I've worked for the public theater for so long because I've worked with two different directors. I was hired by George Wolf. Um, George C. Wolf is a film director and a, and a Broadway director, and he, he started his career at the public. For your audience who may not know, the public theater was founded uh, by a guy named Joe Papp, who put on free Shakespeare in the park um, and began putting on plays downtown at a building that was originally the Astor Library that was turned into the public theater. And that out of that theater has come Melvin's, Meryl Street, Calvin Klein, Philip Seymour Hoffman, um, uh, directors like Tony Kushner, um, George Wolf himself is, is that kind of director and continues to this day at that level and uh, is, is legendary in New York City. When I began designing it, uh, it didn't have much of an identity. What had an identity was the, the Shakespeare in the Park productions that were painted by an artist named Paul Davis. But nobody knew where these things were from. It's very interesting how the public in general understands a place. And what I began doing for the public theater was I designed um, a graphic language. Uh, some of it was in logo type, but it was also the other typography that collectively gave the theater a voice and that you could recognize the theater from seeing these, these posters. Unfortunately, they didn't have enough money, so many people didn't see the posters. They only saw them if they went down to the public theater or they saw you know, occasional small ads in the New York Times. And if the play was a hit, 
then everybody recognized the poster. But if the play wasn't a hit, you never saw the poster. And, <laughs> and so it became that the theater was not necessarily associated with those plays because if the play became a hit, the play went to Broadway. Yeah. And I did a, a series of posters for a blockbuster musical that George Wolfe produced in the uh, late 90s called Bring in the Noise, Bring in the Funk, which was a tap rap musical. And the graphics for it were everywhere. And the graphics were very loud, felt very much like New York City and became confused with New York City. So when the play left the public theater and went to Broadway, there were even more graphics and there were billboards all over the city and on water towers and things like that. And various magazines and, and advertising agencies started copying it. They just started doing the same thing. Yeah. And they had more money to promote whatever they were promoting than this little theater downtown where it was invented. So it was like New York City ate the identity of the public theater. Wow. So it's sort of an interesting thing to, it's gratifying to design something that becomes a hit. Yeah. But yeah. the problem is what happens with that hit and whether was this hit the right thing for that theater because they, in a funny way, lost their identity to the rest of New York City. It no longer looked like an original creation. Nobody knew who I was particularly, except for the graphic design community. So shortly after the whole thing with Bringing the Noise, Bring the Fun, George Wolf left and Oscar Eustace became the director. He's still the current director. He was different from George. George was focused on individual plays and the way we promoted were for individual plays. Oscar was focused on the whole theater and he began developing other programs like for unheard of plays, something called Under the Radar. And he had a, a children's thing and he had a playwrights association and he made, he made it more about community as much as it was also about plays that go to Broadway, which is part of their mandate. And I started, he asked me to readdress the public theater and to redesign the identity over again, over again, which is so unheard of. I never had uh, an experience where I inherited a new director and the director says, do it again. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it just doesn't happen. It's not, it, it, if you talk to people who work in my field, that's usually you're out. You know, yeah, you're fine. Yeah, yeah. I designed something for him, but it, it didn't really work. It was, it was good for a couple of seasons, but it became boring in repetition because it was a system. And then at one point I analyzed what I had done wrong. And aside from the fact that I'd collectivized everything, I realized that what made membership come to the public theater was not an individual play and certainly not the identity of a theater. It was the idea of belonging to a season. And at that point I had a, I had a visual language for the theater, but I would change it each season, not the typeface, but the attributes of the way I, I played with that, like some years it was stenciled, some years it was slashed, this year, this year it's sort of going to be quite crazy, hmm. um, where you recognized the work of the theater collectively. So you recognized a whole season at once because everything would be done in that style and then it would disappear and it would be something else the next year. Hmm. And a funny thing happened, the membership went up because it was actually talking to the audience the way the audience used that theater. Wow. It's not a Broadway theater. It's a different kind of theater. And the reality is that as a designer, it was a real breakthrough for me. And, and now people are asking for it. Like the Atlantic Theater wanted a, a similar system. Berkeley Theater wanted a similar system. And, and it's starting, it became recognized as actually the, the, the best way to do these 
these theater groups that are putting on seasons. I would have never discovered this if I had been doing this project for five years and over or something like that, that you, you know, in a normal kind of span. It took, you know, I think it was 17 years to try to figure out what, you know, when at that point in time we did the signage and the building, all this other stuff, but it, it took that amount of time to learn what was really happening, not what the research said. Mm-hmm. I read the research. Oh, somebody didn't like the poster for that play, but they like that it really doesn't tell you anything. You really have to figure out how do people identify something as theirs Hmm. and how how do the actors and actresses feel about it? And then the other thing that was interesting was that the actors and actresses don't get their names on the on the posters um, because it becomes too political and they would change the posters and they would always fight about that. And until I was into it about five years and then they accepted that the posters were the thing. And, And but but what happened when I started collectivizing the seasons and they the the interior people and the actors and actresses started naming the seasons after the graphics on the posters. So the season that where, where I cut through photography and typography, they call that the slashy season or the, and I, you know, I didn't even know they were doing that. And they would come, they, they come sometimes with the posters for me to sign them for them, you know, and then whatever season they're in, whatever they've named it based on the graphics. Wow. And that is, that's something that never happened to me with anything else because I've never stayed that long or got that involved. I love what you said about Citibank and Travelers Group. Yeah, what happened was that there were, you know, we designed, I designed the mark really right at the beginning. When they came, when they came to Pentagram, they wanted something that they could put in the, in the newspaper to announce the merger. Yeah. And, uh, and that's when I designed the mark. And then, of course, the, they never agreed on it. So they just, they used something where they cobbled together the Citibank logo and put a traveler's umbrella next to it. It looks stupid. And then for an entire year, they they argued internally about whether or not which mark they should use, whether or not they should use that mark, et cetera. And I think they, I don't think they ever made an actual decision. I think an ad was closing and they had to pick something on it. And that was the thing that survived. So they, they, they used it and then it became the logo. I, I found that Politically, what was going on in the company affects everything. That originally the reason they couldn't settle on the mark was that the owner or the head, the president of, of um, Citicorp liked it. So Sandy Weil, who was Travelers, decided he didn't like it. And then he pushed, he pushed the uh, Citicorp guy out and he left. And Sandy Weil took it over and then he said he liked it. <laughs> that's all. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's a creative, creative work. A lot of creative work there. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, it's not very scientific, I would say. But what I loved about it, though, I mean, uh, from an outsider's point of view, not knowing what really went on there, was that the T in City became the umbrella from the Travelers Group, right? So I mean, right. it was like a merger of two companies, but also a merger of, of two symbols. What I thought was really so. But how did you get into the hamburger business, then the Shake Shack thing? <laughs> how did that happen? There are a lot of things in my life that are really accidental. Um, so. Pentagram, the building that we sold uh, three years ago that I really miss, is, was on Fifth, Lower Fifth Avenue. Uh, there was a park across the street called Madison Square Park. Madison Square Park originally was a needle park when we first moved into that neighborhood, and there were a lot of drug addicts. And then, then all of a sudden, there was this urban renewal to make the Flatiron District this fancy district. 
So there was a, a commission that was put together and Danny Myers had two restaurants across the park. I did the graphics for Madison Square Park and I did them for free because our building faced the park and uh, the woman who ran the conservancy and the promotion for the conservancy came over to see me and asked me if I would donate graphics for an identity for the park. And I didn't have to if I didn't want to because she would go to Ivan Shermayoff, who was around the corner on the other, other block, and he would do it if I didn't want to do it. Well, I don't want to get up every day and look at Ivan Shermayoff's logo. <laughs> so I had to do the project because I thought I'd be completely miserable if I had to look at that every day. Huh. Even though I think Ivan's work's terrific. It was just my professional jealousy. I did the project, and then I became like the, the queen of whatever went on in the park. So Danny Meyer, who had this restaurant across the street, decided to make a hot dog stand in the park when they were having some kind of festival. And then he thought it was so great. They loved doing it so much. They thought it'd be great to have a burger stand in the park. So uh, he hired a brilliant architect named James Wines to design this structure that's still there to this day. And the, the structure was, was prefab and dropped into the park. And the, the conservancy, this, the Madison Square Park Conservancy, came and asked me to do the graphics for it because it was going to be in the park. So I looked at the architecture and I picked a typeface called Neutra, which looked like it was designed in the style of the architecture. And it sat on top of the building. And then and I, I designed some type that said burgers, fries, uh, shakes, etc., that went around the steel beam because the steel beam was there. It wasn't like, like there wasn't a steel beam, it was just a steel beam without type. I said, oh, that needs some typography. That became the, the basic graphics for Shake Shack. So it sat there and it was a big hit. It was just an accident. You know, he stuck the thing in the park, he made a really good burger, he charged a reasonable amount of money and people came and they had bags that sort of had the Shake Shack logo on. <laughs> then five years later, he thought, well, maybe I'll make a chain out of it. And he was going to do one up on Columbus Circle. But he said he always wanted really neon type. He was sorry that the type wasn't neon because his memory of, of, of shake places were that they always had neon type. And so I said, well, I don't think the building will look good in neon, but what if we put neon in the graphics somehow? So we designed this neon hamburger, sat between the word shake and shack. And then there was a bunch of other neon stuff like neon French fries and neon cups and saucers and neon everything. And then there was a menu board. We made those things and the thing became an international brand, you know, and that's the way it is. And if you look at the original package we designed for him, and I think now must be 2005, I think, something 2005, 2006, nothing's changed. It's been like that all over the world. And it's amazing. It's amazing how consistent it is. The innovative thing we did for him, which I think really works, is that when we were designing this, the typography for the building, not the, not the graphics that go on the menu with the paper stuff's easy, but what, how to think about the building was that he could not predict what kind of neighborhood he would be in. He hired the woman from Site Design, which was James Wine's company, to re and she retained herself as, as architect of the building. What she would do, and this was part of the, the, the manual, the style guide we gave them, is that the building signage would be done in the style of whatever the building was that they had rented. So in Miami, it's sort of like this, this uh, low white building and it's got green neon on it, you know, where on, on uh, uh, Broadway, it's got bulbs and, and, but it's always the same font and, but the size and the scale of it changes depending on the architecture. And that's what makes them consistent and great, even though they're all different. That was really the breakthrough of that job. 
Danny is is a genius, and that was a genius business. Yeah, I remember that the the Shake Shack in Madison Square Park. It's pretty. It's, it's a really interesting design of that building. I mean, I now James Wines. Yeah, now that when I think about it, I think the logo and that that building makes a lot of sense together. That type was designed for that building, and that the subsequent buildings. The type style is the same, but the materials go with whatever that architecture is or whatever that neighborhood is. I and that's see. Sort of what, that's what's unusual about it. What is the difference between your design work on the one hand side and then the physicality of the, the three-dimensional uh, signage? Identity design, as we talked about before, it's, it's intuitive and analytical. Uh, wayfinding design is logical. You're working in 3D and you start working with materials. Now, if somebody was trained as a graphic designer, I didn't know I could make anything stand up. And I really didn't start designing uh, in 3D till I was 50, mm-hmm. which was unusual. And I didn't know how to, how to read an architect's plan. But it's another thing that happened from the public theater was that there was a, a building architect at the public theater who happens to be very famous. His name is James Stewart Polshek. He had a company called Polshek Partnership, which is now turned into a a firm called Eniad. Yeah. And he came, he, he, he was given my new identity in 1994 by George Wolfe. And he said, can we incorporate this in the building? And, and, and he liked the identities. This is great. We just, you know, they, they had to recast a messed up building. So James's idea, Jim is really his name. He uh, said, let's paint all the walls white. Let's hang up these bright colors. You may take this area here, hang banners and your great typography and put that there. And that'll be terrific. And they sent it to me pretty much that fast and handed me a, a giant roll of architects plans with lighting and plumbing and all of that shit. And I, I, I took them back to Pentagram and I started to cry because I didn't know how to read it. I didn't know what I was looking at. I didn't, know, I didn't know the difference between something being in elevation or being in plan. And he would be talking like that really fast, like I understood what he was talking about. And I did not know what to do. Uh-huh. And um, I went to a woman who worked for my partner, Michael Beirut, who actually, because he came out of Massimo Vignelli's office, knew how to do signage. And he had a woman who was an expert working for him named Tracy Cameron. And I went over to her and I, I showed her the graphic and I showed her the plan. And the plan was to put this graphic design as a banner behind this arch. And I said to her, uh, he wants me to put this graphic design in this arch and I don't know how to do that. And she says, well, you measure the arch and then you put your typography, the size you want it in the arch and position it there. And then you have it made. And I said, that's it. She says, that's it. <laughs> that was sort of it. Okay. Um, when I started to realize that you could realize what these things could be on computers with Photoshop renderings, that's when things got really exciting because I realized I could paint and cover buildings with typography. And then I realized I could build the typography. Then I could realize the, that the, the whole building could be the sign. And I began creating this stuff that way. And I loved it because, because I didn't know how to do it. And I had to figure it out. And the most fun you have is when you're completely unqualified for the job and don't know what you're doing. That's where you make all the discoveries. It's really, it was really I still enjoy it. So the whole building can be the sign. Right. So give me an example of that. Uh, the New Jersey Performing Arts Center, completely covered in typography. 
Wow. Everything that went on the outside of the building was just a paint job, but it was wild. And what happened was that, that it was so outrageous what I had done that I started to become known for it. So I did about four theaters in a row after that. They were covered with typography, type on the floors, going up on the walls, around the ceilings. I mean, things like that, that, that people weren't doing yet. Yeah. Um, and and that, was, that was all done out of ignorance. After Sandy, when you did some, uh, 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 do you call it a signage, signage project? When the boardwalk was just, you know, just demolished uh, from the storm, the people were afraid that the livelihood of the community was going to go down because so many businesses were based on it. Building that back with the name Rockaway in it cheered everybody up because they were all pissed off that it was going to be a cement boardwalk and not a not a plank boardwalk like the traditional boardwalk was. Yeah. But then we got this thing with their name and they out there, which was wonderful. When I when we first started the project and you 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 found out how the communities felt, which was really you know you could feel their pain. Their boardwalk was gone and they, you know, they, they, you know, you, there was the 92nd Street Beach and the 102nd Street Beach and the other beach that was, you know, in the 80s. And they're all, you know, numbering systems because it's New York City. Those beaches really have character. And I remember when I was a kid and I would go to the Jersey Shore, New Jersey, and, you know, it's a big, long beach. They're all white. There's ocean. But you knew what the beach looked like on your street as you entered the beach. There's something, particularly if you're a kid and you see it, you you this thing stays with you your whole life. Like my beach, that's how it is. Yeah. So all the New York City beaches were were hurt in the hurricane, and so the job was really re-signing New York City beaches. So we took photographs of the beach from the area that you're walking onto the beach, the thing you would remember as a kid, you know, does it dip up one way? Is there that rock there? Do you see the edge of Staten Island over on that side? You know, yeah. things, things that you remember. And we had a photographer go out and shoot every single beach and put type on it and people would would come and they were really moved by it. The, the people in uh, the Rockaway Community Center, you know, we're giving away postcards of the beach, beaches, you know, there are like six or seven beaches that are all along that, that area. And that was like their, you know, you would, it was like you photographed their child. But it was, it was interesting because it became an emotional sign system, yeah. which is, you know, sign systems are usually purely informational. But yeah. this thing, this thing was really about that place, you know, that one specific moment that you enter. And I, I love that. That was wonderful. So... Thank you so much for taking the time. It's very sweet of you to do that. And uh, it's very inspiring, I have to say. And uh, and I'm so glad we had this time to talk about uh, your work. You're, you're a good interviewer. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I had a lot of them. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is Art Insiders New York, and my name is Anders Holst. If you enjoyed this episode and have family and friends who love New York and are passionate about the world of art, design and architecture in the city, please spread the word by following us on artinsidersnewyork.com or liking us on our Facebook page, Art Insiders New York, where we publish newsworthy material all the time. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. This episode was produced by UOM LLC, copyright 2021.